0: A hug. I'm Marie. I'm an alcoholic. God is not up this morning. It's too early. I'm kind of curious about what's been going on in the back of the room. Where everybody keeps talking about it. I'm gonna sit back there tonight. <laughs> um, I'm gonna be wobbling all over this podium. I want you to know I do not have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I had a little knee surgery, and it's from being on my knees for so many years. I think holding that throne and puking every day, 24 hours a day, and sometimes it gets to you. Um, I'm sorry I couldn't be here last year. Um, we had a hurricane this year. The night before I was to come, I talked to Leslie, and she informed me to, that there was a hurricane, but not to worry about it. wasn't going to hit till tomorrow night. <laughs> And I said, either this girl ain't sober or she don't know me. <laughs> so anyway, um, I talked to Bob when I got here, and I've had two invitations, and he told me I wouldn't get a third one, so I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> um, speaking of the hurricane, uh, when I was on the plane yesterday, I spilled a whole Coke in my lap. When I got to New Orleans and Lisa and Leslie picked me up, um they went to the second floor of an underground parking garage. There was three chairs at the end of this little strip, and I said, oh, thank God a seat. Out of the three chairs, I sat in the one that had two and a half inches of water in it.
1: <laughs>
0: so people were driving by, and it was like I was wringing out my diaper. Um, but anyway, I am glad to be here, and I am to tell you in a general way, and to this day I still try to keep it generalized. George, when can I tell the real thing? And he said, not yet. But in a general way, what it was like, what happened, what it's like today. Um, I'm going to come out of my shoes after a while, and I promise you that's all I'll come out of. Um, I'm supposed to be an example today of sobriety, and as you can tell, I'm a nervous wreck. And I remember Millie, one of our old timers who died with 45 years sobriety, and one of my teachers in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you don't have an old-timer in your life, you're cheating yourself. And she used to say, when you get to the podium and you're nervous, she said, that's just God shaking the truth out of you.
1: <laughs>
0: I came, um, oh, y'all give your sobriety date down here. My last drink, by the grace of God, was March the 8th, 1979, and that in itself is a miracle. And... Um, I came from an alcoholic home riddled with alcoholism. If you lived in one, you know what I'm talking about. If there was any money, it went for the for the booze. My father was a was a wino. Um, they used to call me a winette when I started getting sober, and uh, every penny went for the alcohol. There was, we, to our my knowledge, no Al-Anon, no Alcoholics Anonymous, and and there was a lot of. Uh, Extreme poverty. I always say when I hear people talking about poverty that I still don't identify with it because I always said, well, I haven't seen one yet that's like how we lived. Uh, we literally took baths in wash tubs and, uh, we had the old pump in the kitchen sink and, and, um, I know thanks to hair color I don't look that old, but that's how, how we lived and, uh, my mother and father would take turns going to um, mental institutions. My father would go for his alcoholism. My mother would go because she reacted to the alcoholism. And all of the kids, and there were six of us, and we all just grew up hating each other. There was no love in our family. Uh, for a long time, after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not, I could not accept what you tried to give me. I didn't know how to love you back. All I knew was that that I was nobody and that I hated myself and everybody around me. I never knew what it was like to have a loving relationship with a mother and father. I thought you just hated them, and that was how it was. I got to the point where it got pretty bad, and I started to run away from home and, um, and I would want so bad to get picked up by the police. And and I used to slide bus tokens down the old escalator up in West Virginia, which is where I lived at the time. And uh, and I'd always find that little token. So I, for some reason, I never could do anything right. I couldn't even get, I couldn't lose money. I couldn't get picked up by the police. When I was young, I had no problem. As I became older, and uh, anyway, they started. Uh, I started finally successfully running away from home and. Um, and I would tell the police my little tale of woe, and uh, they wouldn't listen to me. And we would go back home, and, and they would take me back to my parents. And my father would do things like he was going to kill himself. And one night he was sitting on a commode, and a shotgun went off through the ceiling. But we didn't know that, and that's just how it was. Over and over and over. And I used to say to myself, This is never going to happen to me. Never in a million years. I will never be like that. Well, I'm here to tell you that I far surpass whatever my father did. And the alcoholism is a disease that tells me I don't have it. It's a disease that tells me I'm not like you. It's a disease that tells me I'll forever be alone. And yet when I picked up that drink, I could become any fabric of my imagination I wanted to become. I could become the prettiest girl, the skinniest girl. All the things you hear in the meeting halls, that's what I believed. I remember um, after this all happened in my family, um, I went before a judge and I was 13 years old. And my, my whole life has been one extreme to the other until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the judge looked at me, and, and um, he sentenced me to two years and nine months in a state reform school. And when I went to this reform school, I can remember when I got there, when I was driving there with these cars, I thought, oh, Lord. How scared I was. But when I got there, I swear it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I loved it. I'm the only one that loved reform school. We had lots to eat and clean sheets. And I just thought it was, you know, them how they did everything. And I used to tell them later because they would take us. And they would put us like on on big flatbed trucks and put us out to work in the gardens in the fields at, like at the crack of dawn with armed shotguns. And I felt just like that Bonnie and Clyde, you know. I just thought she ain't got nothing on me because I had developed this thing where I wanted to be this tough, tough girl. And I know today that if I could be tough then nobody could get to me, then I wouldn't have to give back. And when you don't know how to love somebody, that's how you live. And eventually, I started trying to run away. That didn't do anything. I caused a couple of rides. That got me in a straight jacket. And uh, all my life, I have been a fighter, fighter. I'm going to fight back. And none of that stopped when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember the day that they wanted to uh, parole me and uh, how I cried because I did not want to go back to my family. And when I did go back, it was the same thing. I remember being home, and I'm just telling you this graphic, and it's it's just how it was. My father was drunk, and I remember he was in the kitchen, he was sweeping up cockroaches by the dustpan full, three rats ran across my feet, they started fighting, and my mom handed me some money and said, go get you a six-pack of beer, and that's how I lived. And I remember going to the judge and I said, I want you to send me back to reform school, and he said, no, we can't do that. And I was at that time, I think I was 16 years old, and um, I wanted away from where I was at. I didn't know that this alcoholism was just sitting there ready to blossom. And uh, so what they did, and I just left this reform school, but they sent me to a cloistered monastery, a convent up in Wheeling, West Virginia. So I had now I had to try to become the best girl in this school. And after I'd worked so hard for three years to get this reputation of being a bad one, now I had to become like St. Marie. And I remember <laughs> when I went there the very first night, I ran away. And I ran to the... Uh, uh, it's a little parish down the street there, and I went straight to a priest, and I don't know why. But they brought me back, and later, while I was there, it was the first time ever that I had had any kind of beginning with a God as I understood Him. And it was very, very short-lived. And I graduated from there, and uh, I went up to my, uh, they wouldn't let me go home, so I went to my aunt. My mother would write me letters and tell me she was dying with leukemia, and she didn't have leukemia. And, and the, the, the sickness from this disease had literally just eaten her up over the years, and I didn't understand that until I got sober. Because if you're an alcoholic, and you live with an alcoholic, and you react to that alcoholic, you're going to be as sick as the alcoholic and I believe that with all my heart because my family was just tore apart with this disease. I went up to my uh, aunt in Ohio and uh, uh, it didn't work out. Um, I remember somehow I found a little pint of uh, liquor and I downed that liquor and caused all kinds of trouble and uh, I remember all they had to say, and this might be true with some of you, was "You're just like your mother." My husband today, and he'll be sober 31 years, does not look at me and say "You're just like your mother," because that just got me crazy. And my aunt would do that, so I would drink at it. And I remember they did not only move me out of the town tam- or out of the house; they took me to another town and moved me there. And and while I was there, I got it. I'd been out one night to a party, and I was drunk. And I remember thinking. Uh, I'm going to become a nun. And uh, it was a real bad snowstorm, and the next morning I felt like Joan of Arc trudging in my boots to go find Mother Superior at this convent. And I went in and I told her I wanted to, you know, in my way of thinking, I said, I want to marry God and I want to become a sister and I want to, you know, join the novitiate and just do everything that, because I had all that in the convent and they wouldn't even let me be baptized there because I was under their influence. So anyway, she looked at me and she said, Maria, and that was my name then, she said, Maria, if when you find your place in this world, you come back. And I don't know that I took that as rejection, but I took it as see. I knew how I was. They just confirmed everything that I was not wanted by anybody, and therefore I wasn't going to need anybody. So I went back to my little apartment, and this was close to when uh, John Kennedy was killed, and and he was my hero, and uh, and uh, Dr. Kildare. I had their pictures all over my little. One first-time apartment, and I remember locking myself up in that, in that apartment for the whole weekend and, and just grieving and grieving and grieving over what had happened. And, and I packed my clothes up, and I said that I was com- going back to West Virginia that I didn't like it up there, and I was I was still young, and I remember that uh, there was like, I don't know how many boxes I had packed, but I had this thing where Jacqueline Kennedy was just my, oh, she was everything. And I remember putting on the pillbox hat and the white gloves and the, the raccoon collar, you know, the long coat, and I wanted acceptance and approval so bad from this sick family. And when I got there, <coughs> the cab driver would not take me to where they lived. They said because it had been condemned, so I just picked out a house that I thought they might live in. I said, well, that's probably it there. That's my thinking. And I remember walking right in. The door was open saying, Mom, I'm home. And some strange woman came out, and I could have been killed or anything. That's just how I did. I just could not, did not want to accept the fact that nothing had changed. I had a lot of pride, a whole lot of pride. And I remember... Later, that front porch, it was a huge, it was a storefront, and the whole front porch caved in, and it made the headlines of the Charleston Daily Mail, the town that I had lived in, and I was just devastated. I remember going downstairs after it had caved in, and, and what I saw to this day just keeps me, I just can't believe I remember my father, he always spent a lot of time down there, and I looked over in a corner, and there was, I mean, literally two or three foot high, just cans and cans and cans of, it's called Solox Paint Thinner. My father had been somehow diluting that stuff and drinking it because of the phenomenon of craving. He had to have the alcohol. And this is the man that I condemned over and over and over because he was a sick man. I heard, a, I heard someone say that when you're trying to get somebody to do something that you want them to do and they won't do it or they can't do it for whatever reason, it's like asking a man who has no legs to carry you. I was trying to get this man to, do, to be this father and her to be this mother, and they had no more idea of how to do that than, than I did later on in my life. Anyway, after all this happened, um, I remember thinking, well, now what I need is a baby. I didn't need a husband, I didn't need a boyfriend, I just wanted a baby. And one of the few things that I was proud of was that I was a virgin. And I was uh, 19 years old, and I believe even today that's a little rare. And uh, <coughs> so a girlfriend of mine, we went out to this farm and we came back and we stopped at this little drive-in restaurant. It was, a, you know, literally a little drive-in. And this guy walks over to me, and he had this 50-model Ford station wagon called Sky King. He was on crutches. He was drunk. He had a tooth knocked out, and he told me I had pretty brown eyes, and we got pregnant, and then we had a shotgun wedding. And uh, I was grateful to have this man. Because when you come from where I came from, anybody was better than what I had. And, you know, today with, with, and I'm not speaking for alcoholic women, but with the women that I've shared with, there's no difference than the kind that they're attracted to, they're sober sometimes, than the kind I was attracted to drunk. We're just desperate to have somebody in our life, and then when we get them, the chase is over and we don't want them, you know. So, anyway, I had a child by this man, and... um, Uh, The marriage didn't work out. I had two children by him, and he had a couple of allergies, severe. One was work, and the other was women. And uh, this man ended up having 14 children, and only two of them were mine. And uh, I had sort of a problem with that. And uh, I would come home from work, and there would be an eviction notice on my door. And I I never could put two and two together, and I, I have a big, big Bible that when my daughter was 16 days old, I wrote this fantasy in about how her parents truly loved her and how we would always be there, and I remember I read it last week, my dear, if you ever need counseling, please come and seek us out. Jesus, (laughs) she'd have been in a whole host of trouble. Anyway, uh, my husband decided that he needed to change the scenery, and, and he chose the redhead, and they relocated. And one morning, I'm and I'm going to tell you this and get past all this, um, and what I'm about to tell you, I used for 11 years to get people to circle around me and and feel sorry for me, and I could manipulate them, and, and I know today that I just hadn't dealt with it. But I turned on the TV one morning, there was a picture of a little girl on the TV, and I knew it was my sister, my baby sister, because Mom had tried to cut her hair one day, and half was up to here, and the other half was down to here. And they said, "Have you seen this child?" Well, the anger that I had with my family just kept building and building because I knew, I knew somewhere down the road that they were just rotten parents. That I just, in my heart, I just, there was just nothing. I just, they were terrible. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, um, I was pregnant at that time, and I thought, well. It was a sort of a good piece, but I thought, well, I'll just walk up there and see what's going on. Well, anyway, when I got up there, um, they were, like, taking windowsills off the house and bits of wood, and and they had—someone uh, had gone in the house that night and taken her from there, and, and just—it was a brutal killing, rape, the whole nasty thing. And I remember— I was just a few feet from her, and, and I couldn't look. And And they had taken her that day in a Jeep ambulance, and then I miscarried that night. My father came back and for the funeral and said he was going to kill himself, and I laughed that off. And, and 21 days later, he did, and my brother couldn't handle it, so he went to Nam. Both of them did, and one didn't come back. And I used every bit of that for years and years and years to get people to, to condone my drinking and my behavior. It was the only way that I could find to live amongst anybody. Alcoholics, non-alcoholics, it's the only way. I'm one of those that I believe for a while alcohol kept me alive. Now, when I started, uh, I, after I had these two children, I took them to my mother's and the living conditions were no worse, so the husband that uh, his mother want to take care of him, and I wouldn't let her anyway. She came to get him, and one was three years old, one was five months old, and that's the last I had of my children. I never got those children back. And it was in Alcoholics Anonymous that I finally began the relationship with them, and, and that is still, still today getting better. I have a good relationship with one, and the other one, it's, we're working on it. So it, it takes time. And after this happened, I got it in my head that what I needed to do was not think. And I knew I had a fairly good education. I made good grades in school, but but I thought I needed something where I couldn't think. So I saw this ad in the newspaper, and it was wanting uh, bunnies, cocktail waitresses, and that type thing. And I was pretty homely, you know, and uh, so I worked with what I had to work with. And, and I remember I went up there, and I applied for the job, and I couldn't believe it. I got it. I got this job. It was like, to me, the, just the epitome of everything I ever wanted. Now, that's pretty sick when all you want to do is be a bunny, you know. <laughs> and so I went into this club, and I ended up staying in there 10 or 11 years, and and, um, and I got to the point, you know, the suicide attempts. I had four of them, and, and I remember one of them, I had a red fake fur sofa, and I just had real long hair, and I went in and dolled all up in this three-piece black negligee and and laid down to die. But before I did, I called everybody so they'd come and save me, you know. I'm kind of like my husband. I didn't want to do anything seriously because I might hurt myself. But um, anyway, I remember going to the hospital, and they had me talking to this shrink, and I remember looking at him and saying, oh, I just need a little bit of attention. Um, I bummed a cigarette and asked for a dime to make a phone call, and I called a cab, and I walked out of that hospital, went home in a three-piece black negligee. And I often wonder who needed the help most at that time, him or me, to let me go like that. Anyway, I came back there, and... um, and everything started going from bad to worse, and so uh, there was a lady that took an interest in me, and she said, uh, Marie, I think you need a change. And I was starting to gain a lot of weight, and, and I know, today I know that when I would go into these bars and I would get all this instant, what I thought was respect was fear from people, because if they didn't speak to me, I would start throwing chairs or fighting or threatening somebody, so it was just easier to say, Hi, how are you, and than to not speak to me. But she said that she thought I needed a change, so I began a new career, and, and I went to work for the, for the, it was called the Black Diamond Girl Scout Council. And uh, when you come from where I come from, and you go to work for the Girl Scouts, and there's little cookies sitting on your desk, and you're in the little uniform, it is a nightmare. I was a full-blown alcoholic, and the phone calls started about possible OD had been drinking, or some woman would call up that I got my boyfriend mixed up with her husband, something like that. You know, all this stuff started happening, and I, I lasted there for one year. And then, uh, things, of course, if you drank the way I did, and I, I was drinking at this point of my life because I had to drink. I had to have the alcohol. I was losing everything I had. I had, I mean, everything was going. The car, everything I had was going. And this woman again changed jobs. Now, I don't know how alcoholics excel in getting jobs, but we get the best jobs there are. You know, in our 12 and 12, it says we have the ability to earn far above the average income. I, I guess it's my, you know, I'm just so used to manipulating. But anyway, I had gone from the clubs to the Girl Scouts, and now I'm going to work for the governor's office. And uh, I'm an alcoholic with a big ego. And when they gave me a state car and a briefcase, that was all she wrote. <laughs> I would be out of town, and it's like Millie used to say, y'all were paying me money, but I have no idea what for. I was supposed to be working if for anybody here with the government, please don't tell on me, but I was supposed to be putting together SBA loan packages. Do you know how many people got money? (laughs) Anyway, I would be getting on the elevator at the state capitol, and somebody would say, God, I smell alcohol. And it wouldn't be anybody on there but me. And, and I would say, what's well, the mentholyptus or whatever, the cough drops or something, you know, and I'd go, yeah, I smell it too, you know, and, and I got real good. I'd go in the bathroom and I carried my vodka in a sepacol bottle and, and I would take the lid off and push the, the commode with my foot so I could synchronize the noise so nobody could hear it. And then, um, one day I was at a chamber office and, um, we had a no. At this other office, and was supposed to go to the chamber office, and something happened. I started shaking all over, and just I couldn't control my, anything about me. And, and I made an excuse, uh, something about it being that time of the month. Y'all not, y'all can figure that out. And I went on. Down to a a liquor store, and I remember going in, and this was in the morning, and uh, not that I wasn't a morning drinker, but it just, I remember this got my attention. My God, why, I need a drink. And I'm one of the alcoholics that I'd go you know, I lived for happy hour and I plopped down on the bar stool and, and the only way I felt normal was when I picked up that drink and I love the doctor's opinion. But he talks about me, you know, that the only life that to me that I lived the only normal life was that of the way I lived, the alcoholic. He he said I was in full flight from reality. You know, I was mentally incompetent. And the only thing that was going to help me was to experience an entire psychic change. And boy, back then, if you'd have told me any of that stuff, I would have just flipped right out. But anyway, I remember I went, uh, I had a couple double Bloody Marys, and that didn't work, and I went downstairs, and I started chugging out of this vodka bottle. And, and the next thing I knew, I woke back up several counties, away in, in my little condo, condo, apartment, that everybody had just, this guy had moved me out, you know, that I was supposed to marry. I had, I think, two or three serious engagements, or they said I did. I don't remember many of them. They'd come in and find me. I'd be kissing on some other guy. You know, that's the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. You can just kiss all these gorgeous men and not get in any trouble. They just look at you and say, keep coming back. And, and, uh... <laughs> But back then, they took it kind of seriously. So anyway, of course, the marriage was called off, and and, um, this guy had had a severe automobile accident, and I blamed myself. and, And I spent what I hope is to be the last, the very last drunk, I pray to God, that I'll ever have. And the only thing I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous was a movie I had seen. For some reason, this movie attracted me, and it was called The Days of Wine and Roses. And, and when she was looking at that harbor, and she had that candy bar in her hand, and she said, the world is so ugly and so dirty. That's how I felt. And I remember when Jack Lemmon was uh, in the having his DTs and tearing up the greenhouse, you know, I didn't make fun of him when I was watching that. And, and I was one that, that when Jimmy Swaggart would come on in the morning, I would take my hand with a drink in this hand, and I had, <laughs> I had the hots for Jimmy Swaggart. I told that when I got sober. I thought he was the cutest thing, you know. And when he got in all that trouble, I thought, that's shame he didn't run into me when I was drinking. I wouldn't have told anybody. <laughs> But anyway, um, when this thing came down, uh, I remember picking up the phone, and later I found out I called many people, but I said, call A and, and, and that morning, prior to this phone call, I was on the floor, and there was an uh, end table beside me, and I was still drinking good vodka, and I had that Smirnoff, a half-gallon, and I couldn't get it to my mouth, and I remember pouring it just to try to get it to my mouth. And I was 33 years old, and I was in that shape, and I thought I was just partying. And if y'all leave me alone, I would be okay. And I remember after I called, the next thing I heard was, Al-Anon, hell. This is an alcoholic if I ever saw one. So somebody must have said there's somebody that needs Al-Anon. Well... These two gals came up there, and I remember I had bought this hot pink nightgown, and in big block letters, all the way down the sides of the floor, it said, Baby, light my fire. And that's how I went to detox. I often think, what had happened, what would have happened to me that day, if those women, when they got that call, said, and I've got chills running all over me, said, I don't have time, or give it to so-and-so, let them take care of it, or, uh, oh, I'm not in a good place today, I have to look after me, I might have died. I have no guilt today when my phone rings, I go, because those women took that time to come and get me, even though I couldn't hear any message that day. They took me to where I could hear the message. I was in this detox center, and I thought I was in heaven. They handed me a, a jar, it was like a, a pickle jar, and it, or at least that's what I remember. And because I remember, don't make it the truth, that's just what I remember. And it was full of whiskey, and I said, I thought I couldn't drink here. And and they said, uh, drink this, because they detoxed me with whiskey and Librium or something. And I had been doing some of those, as Harold W., Wave's well dead now. Harold Wilson used to call them those little pellets. I'd been doing those for many, many years. And, and so it took me, I had a hard time withdrawing physically from all this stuff. And, and after I was there about on the, the second or third day, they, I had something called delayed DTs. And for my first year in sobriety, that is the reason I stayed sober. Because I did not want to go through that again. I had seen a lot of things in my life, but I got to wrestling with this half-lizard, zebra striped thing about this big under the bed. And it's very real, but nobody could see it but me. So when you're trying to get all these people to catch this thing, you know, I mean... (laughs) And there was a woman about this big, just laughing, hanging on to the water sprinklers in the room, just laughing at me. And I remember that I could move this pink fog with my eyes. I could move it anywhere, but if it got close to me, I couldn't breathe. So even in my DTs, I was in control. That's how far my control went. I, You know, alcoholics and their control. I stayed in there. I took um, March the 8th as as my sobriety date. I remember these women saying... Marie, we'd like for you to be in. And I said, I'll do anything if you don't force me to do it. So they came down the hall just by them coming and saying, Hello, Marie, it's time for the meeting. I took that as they were forcing me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I said, Well, you said you wouldn't force me. And they said, Fine. And they just turned around and walked off. I said, Well, in that case, I guess I'll go. And um, I remember going into this. It was a clinic-type situation, and I went into this place. And I remember I had this wild, Chinese-colored, multicolored robe on. That's what I requested, and they brought it. And I thought my hair was clean. I had real long hair, but they later told me it looked like it had been combed with Vaseline. And I was dirty, and I didn't know that because I chose to remember the things that would make me look good. And I remember this guy was talking about his Jeep being up in a tree. And I thought, well, if his Jeep is in a tree, then he needs to be here, but I don't need to be here. And I was shaking so bad that I couldn't hold a cup of coffee. And I shook like that for a long time in my first couple of months of sobriety. I used to hold a pencil to try to steady my hand. And at the end of that meeting, there was... And I don't, I must have got away from the women. You know, I'm one of them alcoholic women that if you were a woman, you were my competitor. You stay away from me because all you wanted was what I had on or the man that I didn't have but I might get or my car or whatever it was that I had. You wanted him, so you were a threat to me. And I ended up with these, there was a man on each side and they were big men, stocky men. And I remember when they started to say the the Lord's Prayer. I thought, I am not saying the Lord's Prayer. I've done everything else, but I'm not going in for this business. And they took a hold of my hand, and I could—I tried to leave, and they would not let me go. At the end of the meeting, there was something in me, like a lot of us, that, God, I wanted what you had. (laughs) I didn't know how to ask you for it. There's a girl sitting out there today, or a guy, that wants what we have. But that pride, or maybe they won't accept me, don't let that stand in your way. We're all drunks. You take off our, you know, I'm cleaned up today because you all cleaned me up. I didn't look like that when I got here. I didn't know how to fix myself up or do anything. It was about survival. I have never experienced in my life the love that I have found in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with no conditions. They didn't ask me for anything. Do you want to stay sober? And the most powerful line I ever heard in my life from my original sponsor was, you never have to go through this again. Never. And again, one of my heroes, Harold W., when he was almost dying, the doctor told him all his bad stuff about him. He said, but doctor, you don't understand. There's nothing in the world as hard as getting sober. He could do anything sober. And I believe that today. Anyway, I went through all this process. they come to get me that night. They didn't know who I was because I had makeup on. My hair was fixed. I mean, I looked totally different than that maniac running through the detox center screaming, reporting all the nurses for drinking, you know, because I saw them drink. The reason I saw them drink, I was in DT, you know, so I wanted to do the right thing and report it. They came to get me. They took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, this is just the hoot. You know, this is really something. And, of course, I had big hoop earrings on. I was left over probably Flyer Child. Big hat on. And, and uh, I thought none of you all cared about me because all you did was talk about yourself. You know, you didn't question me or make me fill out anything or ask me things like... Well, who sent you here? And you just talked about yourself. And I thought, God, I'm in the wrong place. Well, anyway, they made the mistake of calling on me. And uh, and immediately I started telling them as best I could all about my sex life. I started getting elbowed. I started getting looked. But they couldn't shut me up. And I remember, I don't remember, they told me later, I was talking about, if a bottle of vodka was sitting on the table and I had a gun, I would shoot it. Now, does that sound like sane thinking? I remember telling them that I woke up with these three men from another country, and but I was fine because all my clothes were still on. I can't tell you the rest of that just got... <laughs> well, anyway... <laughs> I said, nothing happened because I still had my pantyhose on. George said, did you tell him your toes were curled? <laughs> Sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, um, that night after I left the meeting, I went home, and uh, I got that little lecture that a lot of us get when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, they start telling us about the big bad wolves in AA, and they start warning us. You know, and for whatever reason, of course, you know, I felt like most of us felt, well, they just don't want me to have a boyfriend, or they're just so old they can't get one, or y'all, you know, I'll do whatever it is that I have to do. Which reminds me about that part in the book that I love so much about the, I think it's about the third step, it talks about, I will turn my life and will over to, to God, except when it's something that I really want. Then it becomes none of your business, you know. So that's basically how I was living. Well, anyway, um, we went out to eat, and that night at breakfast, I started falling apart, and I dropped everything because and no one paid any attention. They said, oh, it'll be all right. Don't pay attention to it, and I got through that. That night when I got home, I got a phone call from this guy, and he was 13 years sober. And I had about maybe seven hours, you know, and he said, would you like someone to come and watch TV with you? I said, my God, of course I would. So he came up and he started telling me all about, you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and Shoemaker and just telling me all about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and bragged on himself a lot. And I thought, God, I've looked for a guy like this all my life. I didn't know I just had to get sober to get him. And so the only way that I can tell you what all I got from this guy was that everything I knew and I needed from Alcoholics Anonymous, I got that night through injection. That's how I got it. If you can't figure it out, I'll tell you after the meeting. Uh, I began running around with this guy, and, uh, uh, of course, I didn't need my sponsor then because she was just jealous because I had this guy. And I noticed that he didn't have their approval, you know, from the rest of you all, but he was sober a long time, so we didn't need it. So anyway, one night I was coming out of the meeting, and uh, uh, I had four-inch spikes on, and and I had a satin blouse on, you know, just enough to get that cleavage over there, because that's what it was about, and these tight pants on, and coming out of there, and Mr. Alcoholics Anonymous on my arm, and... I heard these firecrackers go off, and I, or at least I thought they were firecrackers. And anyway, he ducked down, and so in my stupidity, I ducked down. And when I got up, I was down there like a waddling like a duck, and there was nobody but me. And when I raised up, there was a yellow <laughs> car. And when I did, there was a woman that had a gun pointed right in my face. Now, those weren't firecrackers. She had unloaded six shots at me over top of my head. And and when she looked at me and informed me that that was her husband and what she would do on no uncertain terms if she ever caught me with him again, well, somehow we left out the I'm married part, you know. And so I start running, and and she catches me, and I run the wrong way, and I'm hugging this church. There's a church there, and right down the street's the place I spent half my life in in this bar. And I had a choice. Was I going to run to that bar if she didn't kill me, or was I going to try to do something and get the heck out of that mess and get home? Well, I pleaded with this woman, and I told her again. I I could assure her she would never have to worry about me again, and I went into my little tale of woe. Now, I have just come from an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I'm not drinking, you know, and I'm supposed to be doing the right thing, and I'm getting shot at. You know, that didn't happen drunk. So I've got this instant confusion. And and by the way, I've often said, I don't think that lady was a member in good standing of Al-Anon at that time. (laughs) So if any of you female drunks out there think you can get around this, they mean women. Anyway, I went home that night, and uh, and he called me, and and I said, "Get her some help now." And I needed the help, you know. Get her some help. I won't press charges. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I got that phone call a couple days later. That we hear women like me, um, that my place is with her, and I mean, I don't have the sobriety to handle that. You know, he gave me everything. I thought this was. You know, this is supposed to be my big change in my life. And the only thing I could think of, the only picture I had in my mind was a red booth. It was a corner booth with a candle in the middle of it. And I knew I was getting ready to do something I didn't want to do. Because in that short period of time, I started to like me just a fraction. My sponsor, later, she used to come and she'd say, Look in the mirror, Marie, look how bright and shiny your eyes are. God, a little thing like that, and it would make me feel 20 foot tall. I said, God, you're right. They're they're white. You know, I mean, I was changing. Anyway, I called this woman up that I hated, the one that was gruff. You know, you, you got them in your group. They think they know everything, and, and they point out little things you do, and you're trying to stay sober, and, uh, but I called her up, and, uh, I said, you told me if I ever wanted help to call you. And I told her about getting shot at and all that. And and all she said was, she used to say my name in three and shake her head, Marie, Marie, Marie. If I've seen that picture once, I've seen it a thousand times. They came and got me, and I began to recover. I joined a traditional uh, Alcoholics Anonymous group. That's the kind where all you discuss is AA. And in this group... These people, the members of that group, loved me. They didn't ask anything of me. They let me do little things around the group. And I remember I was still working for the governor's office, and I'd be over by the copy machine, and I'd go, I've got to chair a meeting tonight. And I'd just say these things under my breath, because I really didn't know the traditions then. And what I was saying was, finally, I'd make it loud enough, I have to chair a meeting tonight. So someone would say, what meeting are you chairing? So I could say, I'm chairing a meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know you weren't supposed to broadcast it and put it all over the place. Because it was like reform school again. I wanted what I had found. I loved it there. It's the only place in my life I ever felt I truly belonged. That that Mother Superior, those years ago, God, I've thought so many times through the years, I could tell her now I know where I belong. You know, I started getting sober later on. I met this guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. We broke every rule in the book. Again, he, this was a different one, he had 13 years sobriety. And we married, I don't recommend it again, but I got married at five months sobriety. And we went down to talk to Billy and Isaac, two of the old timers, because he was in love and I thought I was in love. And we went down there and, and we got everything we could get from them. We came home and we got married. And it was for three years in this marriage before I believed that this man really loved me. And I created mess after mess after mess. You know, I we moved when I was one year sober to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I hated it. There weren't any tall buildings. It was all sandy. It was all, you know, I thought everybody was just backwoods. Now, I'm from the hills and the hollers of West Virginia, and I was thinking they were backward. Now, that'll tell you the ego that the alcoholic But eventually I started to get sober, and, and then I didn't have that sponsor like I used to have. And I would call her, and I kept trying to replace Gracie in my life because Gracie was my everything. She knew when to be hard, when to be firm, when to be loving. She gave me her soul. She just literally saved my life. And when I went to Myrtle Beach, I didn't have that. Because I, I, thought, well, I kept comparing. That group's not like our group. That sponsor's not like my sponsor. They don't do it right here, you know, over and over and over. Till finally, um, a lady came into my life, and she didn't live there. She's got a place there now, but she became my sponsor. And that's Marion B. And I love that woman with all my heart. And I've had that same sponsor now. I had different sponsors for the first three years at Myrtle Beach, but I've had Marion as my sponsor for 14 years. And she knows everything about me. We're big in the area that I come from. We just really discourage against sponsor hopping. You know, because I've had them, they'll come, they want this one and that one. And any time I ever sponsored Hops, you were telling me the truth and I didn't want to hear it. What I really wanted to do was go to the new sponsor and tell her all the crap I thought about the old sponsor. You know, so in our home group, if they come to us and want us to sponsor them and they've got a sponsor, we send them right back to that woman. And we say, honey, she's the one that spent the hundreds of hours with you, not me. You know, so, and it seems to work for us. George and I began our uh, started our life in Myrtle Beach, and uh, uh, things went along fairly well. I can remember a point in my sobriety where I was uh, eight years sober, and I about lost my mind. I literally thought my marbles were going, and and uh, what had happened was I had gotten caught up with sponsoring people and. And i think i 've had you know i've in service i 've just been I had twelve straight years in service and and by the way, before I forget, I want to thank the committee you all have done an outstanding job. The work that goes on to put on one of these conventions is phenomenal, and I think you all can pat yourself on the back it 's been beautiful. All this stuff started happening, I was in service, but all my fears came back every fear i mean I thought they were gone forever, but they all started coming back. And I couldn't make peace with myself. And I remember saying, I'm going to crack up again. I remember the first time, I was a year and a half sober, and I heard about that room that you went into that didn't have a doorknob on the inside. You were just trapped there. And I remember George said, Marie, you can't hold a negative thought and a positive thought at the same time. And the only thing positive I knew was the Word, God. And I laid there that night, and I said, God. God, 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 till I fell asleep. And because I took the action outlined by another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, the next day I received a letter from that daughter I hadn't heard from in about ten years. That's how it works in AA. If I do what you tell me to do, I don't have to like it to do it. I thought to accept something, I had to like it and approve of it. And I don't have to do that today. But anyway, I was up there, here I am at eight years sobriety, eight, and I'm going crazy. And an old-timer came in from Charlotte, and he said, Marie, I told him, I said, well, I'm sponsoring people. I'm going to meetings. I'm doing everything I should be doing, blah, blah, blah. He said, what are you doing about the personal action on yourself? When was the last time you sat down and wrote something out? I hadn't done that. I got all involved in trying to be, I guess, Miss Alcoholics Anonymous and forgot where the hell I came from. And I had to stop taking so many phone calls and I had to stop doing some of the things and I had to start taking that action on me that once again could make me a, a, a whole person again because I walked around most of my life with that hole in me that nobody, no human being could fill up. I remember one time when I was going through this, I looked at my husband and I said, I know you love me with everything that's in you and I'm dying before your eyes and you cannot help me. Only God could help me. And I believe that God is the, that that time comes in every alcoholic's life when I'm going to be faced with something that you people can't help me with, that only God can do that, but God works through you people. You know, Bill Wilson, I love how he thinks and writes. He says, beware of that direct pipeline to God, you know, where we get in with God told me what to do today. Well, God could tell me to reach down and pick up a cold beer if I'm the one thinking what God's telling me. I have to have you people in my life. And when I did what this old-timer suggested, it started getting better. You know, I have found in my home group that, you know, anybody can get behind this podium. I can get behind this podium and tell you all this stuff. But the real test is, what am I doing in my home group? How do I live in my house? You know, what do I do for the drunk, the alcoholic who still suffers when you people can't see what I'm doing? What kind of program am I living then? And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I am hell to live with, but I'm willing to get better. I told George, I called him last night, I said, you know, when I told you I loved you at the airport, and I'd been a bitch trying to get out of town, missed one meeting, and four of them come over to see what happened to me. Thank God if they ever quit that, they, I might be drunk somewhere. I said, but if something was to happen, would you really know how much I love you? I had a little pigeon of mine one time, gave her first talk, and at the end of it, she said something just blew me away. She said, if there's anybody in this room today that's done something for you, that you really love them or you love someone so much, for God's sake, don't wait till next Thursday and tell them. Tell them before you leave this meeting today. And, you know, after that meeting was over, I went up to several people and said, I want you to know how much I love you. Like I told my husband, I said, do you really know how much I love you? I want you to know how much I love you. Because I've never been capable of the gift that I've received in Alcoholics Anonymous. And through sponsorship, through sponsorship is how I'm able to free me of me. You know, when she read today, we will escape disaster together. And the most satisfactory years of my existence lie ahead it ain't even happened yet, it's going to get better. Every time I would say, when's it going to get better, it would get better. I'm not having DTs. i got a bug up here. <laughs> anyway, all this has gone on, and I reach up another place in my sobriety, and then three years ago, my whole world dropped from underneath me. The worst thing the world could have happened did happen, and it didn't happen to me, but I was affected by it. When something happened with my husband, and, he, and, and I can't get into it because I don't want to tell his story, but he got a little card playing, confused there with something else, and, and some erosion of spiritual principles started happening. And when those spiritual principles start getting at, and things of the world start to become more important, then something happens. And he did, by the grace of God, did not drink, and now he's doing fine. But I'm going to tell you, I knew what it was like, and I've not said this from the podium, I was 15 years sober, and I was watching Sears come and pick up my tractor, my vacuum cleaner. I had to file bankruptcy to hold on to my house. You know, AA is not, we don't get on a jet and sell off into blissful happiness every minute of the day. To me, Alcoholics Anonymous is about learning how to live and how to handle sobriety, and about there is pain in sobriety. There's also an equal amount of joy. And the freedom that comes from knowing that today no matter what happens in my life, as long as I don't pick up that drink, I've got a good shot at it getting better. I was sitting in a group one night after all this happened and somebody was wanting something, I was still I think I cried in the home group for three weeks. I couldn't stop it. I just kept crying and crying. And I'd look at this man that I idolized and I'd say What happened? Because for the first few days when all this went down, I was just a rock, you know. And then about the fourth day, the real me came out. How's this going to affect me? What's going to happen to me? What am I going to lose? What are they going to think? All of this stuff started happening in my life. And once again, the total selfish self-centeredness that truly is the root of everything that's got to do with me started coming out. And the anger started. And for a long time, because somebody got sick that had 28 years of sobriety in this program, me, with my little 15, wanted to punish him. And I didn't know that. I did, it took me a long time in AA to learn about forgiveness, like I did with my mother. I was, My God, I was 12 years sober when it finally dawned on me, I don't want to hurt that woman anymore, and she can't hurt me anymore. And whenever I could truly forgive her, that's where my peace came from because I'm not threatened by her anymore. And today she's in a nursing home down there. And today my husband is doing okay. And everything's back the way it should be. You know, when I came down here to come down here, I cannot tell you, and I'm not speaking for other people, but I don't say hallelujah. I cannot wait to get down there to Louisiana, wherever it is I'm going. You know, i got a little business up there, and I'm a self-centered alcoholic. What's going to happen? What if these girls don't show up to work? What's blah, blah, blah? But you know what I've been trained to do, and it is a training. I'm told that first and foremost, carrying the message, not my message, but the message of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the only thing that saved my life. And if there's just one little girl in here today, just one little girl, that, that finds out that no matter who you are or where you come from, if you're an alcoholic, there is a way out. That's what it's all about. I have always been taught that you do what's asked of you in Alcoholics Anonymous, not to the extent that it hurts you or your ego takes over, but to always be willing. You know, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. Those amends that I made, I made them, and I was one of those drunks that I wanted the approval I wanted your approval. Look how wonderful I'm doing. I didn't know I had to make them whether you approved of it or not. You know, I didn't know all the way down through there that the 11th step, it's all about the power. You know, I didn't know any of that. And then I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm sitting around the room, and every once in a while that ego kicks in and I think I have an answer. I think I have an answer. And God's good to me because every time I think I have somebody's answers, I fall flat on my face. And that's as it should be. I learned a lot going through this, this last thing. I learned a whole lot about pride. I learned a lot about it doesn't make any difference if you, if you go broke. My husband's mother died two years ago. We did not have the money to even bury that woman or go to the funeral. Some friends of ours who were members of our home group, and it wasn't a group that did it because we keep all that separate, but some friends of ours. I'm going to tell you what kind of group I belong to. Got together, and we didn't have cars at that time. We lost everything we had. Got together, came and handed us an envelope. They rented us a car to go bury George's mother and handed us an envelope with $300 in it said, go bury Becky and have a safe trip. Now, today, things are all turned around. But when we needed it, they were there. Who wouldn't be grateful? Who wouldn't do whatever it takes to go out and carry that message to that alcoholic? You know, to me, the pain is truly the price of admission into a brand new life. Truly. And the pain that comes in AA, it says I will experience the exact amount of peace and joy in my life that I bring into the lives of other alcoholics. You know, we have a lot of fun in Myrtle Beach. we got a lot of crazy alcoholics in there. We're a real working group. Uh, uh, of course, our group has another name. They call us the Step Nazis, and that just means it's okay. Uh, and when they want to get sober, a lot of them come. I wish that I could tell you about every single individual member of that group. I wish I could tell you about all of them. You would love them. But all, I'm going to sit down there because I know you've got to get out here at 1030. But I want to thank you for inviting me. And I want to close with this one thing that saved my life. And I'm not a page quoter, but it was page 100 of the big book. And it says, follow the dictates of a power, of a higher power. No matter what your current circumstances, you will presently live in a new and wonderful world. And I took that to be a promise, and it's true. Thank you, and I love you.